And our sermon text this morning is Second Peter, as we are diving in now into the second letter that Peter has written. And there is been considerable debate, um, especially recently, about the authorship of this letter. But I think it's pretty clear, based on the content of it, and the church accepted very early on, uh, you can read in Church Fathers, that it was Peter who wrote this letter. In fact, as we'll see, he's probably writing to the same people to whom he wrote his first letter, those Christians in Asia Minor. But here we are in Second uh, Peter, rather, and you're going to probably hear me say First Peter a gazillion times, because that's where my mind still is. But Second Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, this is God's word. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and Virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities, is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is God's Word. Let us pray. Father, we ask now that you would attend to the proclamation of your Word by your Spirit so that it might minister the grace of the Gospel to all who hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we as humans, we love to know things. We, we crave knowledge. We crave to understand the who, the what, the why, the how, the of a matter and how things work and why they function the way they do. And our knowledge and understanding are one of those things that sets us apart as the pinnacle of God's creation. It sets us apart from the rest of His creation. We learn and we grow and we perceive and we understand this world in which we live. And here we are in Ann Arbor, one of the world's great university towns. And because of that, we like to think that we actually know a thing or two about knowledge itself and how it is attained. 
I mean, the, the library, the University of Michigan of Library is the second largest research library in the United States and one of the largest in the world. It has over 15 million volumes of information. But with all the knowledge in the world accessible to so many people, the majority of the earth's population, thanks to resources like the internet, Despite all of that, though, we still demonstrate how little we actually understand of this universe that God has made. You would think that after thousands and thousands of years of human history, we we would have figured out more than we have by this point. You would think that we would, would learn to how we can enjoy peace and prosperity in excess, but that simply isn't the case. In fact, it seems the more we know the darker the world grows. And the reason for that is that people want knowledge, but they want knowledge of the world minus the knowledge of the one who made the world, minus the knowledge of God. And Peter will show us as we begin this journey through his second letter that the knowledge of life only comes through a right knowledge of God and Christ. When we, what we learn here in the opening verses of this letter is simply this, is that God in His grace and mercy has made Himself known to people through Christ so that we have everything we need for this life and for eternity. God in His grace and His mercy has made Himself known to people so that we can have everything, not just something, everything we need for life now and for all eternity. And the very first thing we see as Peter opens this letter is that grace and peace come from a knowledge of God. So he says in verses 1 and 2, he gives us this greeting, uh, Simeon or Simon, Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So very, again, very clearly here, I believe Peter is the author of this letter. And he writes, as he did his first letter, with the authority of an apostle of Jesus Christ. As one who walked with Christ while he ministered on this earth, Peter saw Jesus as suffering. He he bore witness to the resurrection, and he was commissioned by Christ to serve him as an early leader in the church. And Peter writes, as he says here, to believers in general. Uh, We don't know much about the original audience, where they were located, what their situation was, Uh, but we do get a clue later on in chapter 3 and verse 1 when Peter says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring you up uh, your sincere mind by way of reminder. And so he mentions that he's already written one letter, and we would expect then that this probably means he is writing to the same people to whom he wrote that first letter, the the Christians of ancient Turkey. 
And if that is the case, then we do understand their situation being one of suffering much for their faith, being ostracized, rejected, slandered, and mocked by a hostile culture which demanded conformity. That first letter, as we know, was written to give comfort and encouragement for the sojourn that Christians faced as exiles of, uh, in this life, belonging to God's kingdom. But Second Peter's a little different, because First Peter wrote about opposition from without the church. But Second Peter is a one of warning. He's warning of dangers within the church, particularly those who profess to be Christ, but proclaim a different gospel. And we'll see as we walk through this book, he has many strong words for those who would be false teachers and teach anything other than the gospel of God's grace. And the reason he does that is because false gospels Messages that are void of the only hope we have, which is in Jesus, they can be very appealing when you are facing societal pressure as these original readers probably were. So Second Peter then is all about knowledge. It is all about the knowledge of God and how that knowledge impacts our lives as believers. Peter again writes with great humility here. Notice he tells his readers that they have a faith that is of equal standing with his. He is not putting himself above them. He understands that the same gospel that Peter believes, anyone can believe. And the knowledge that he has of God through Christ is the same knowledge that you and I have of God through Christ. And it comes to us the same way. As Peter says here, by the righteousness of God and the Savior, Jesus Christ. That's an interesting statement. Because he's leaving no doubt that God and Christ are the same. One being and yet three persons. The Christian faith is a faith that confesses Jesus is Savior because He is God. For it is God who pours out His grace and mercy and peace by forgiving all our sin and unrighteousness. And so Peter greets us with that familiar greeting, grace and peace. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in, in what? In the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So it is from this knowledge of God that we have poured out and multiplied the grace of God and the peace of God. But what we note here is that this knowledge is not simply knowledge about God. It's not just facts or information of who He is and what He has done and what He is doing. Though it does include that. There is a mental assent uh, that comes to the gospel, things to which, which we must agree in our minds. But the knowledge of God is not limited just to knowing information, even the right information about Him. This knowledge is personal knowledge. There's a relational aspect to it. And so when Peter asks, or when Peter speaks of the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, he's speaking of not just knowing about God, but knowing 
God personally, knowing our Lord, just as you would know another person, just as you would know your spouse or your kids or parents or neighbors, you know God. There's a relationship here. But not only is it a personal knowledge that, it, that, that he has in mind here, it is a knowledge that must grow. Like any relationship, the knowledge that we have of God must grow if we are to know more about Him. This is the idea behind multiplying grace and peace. So it starts with faith. It starts when you first encounter Jesus and you yield to Him as your Savior and Lord. But the more you learn about Him, the more His grace to you becomes more real, the more it grows and so does his peace. You see, our faith isn't static. It's, it's not this one-time thing where you just pray some prayer and now you believe God and that's it. No, faith is nurtured throughout one's life. From the time they are born to the time that they have this uh, understanding in their mind of who Christ is and make Him their own and until their death or the Lord returns. Faith nurtured is nurtured and it grows. Now, American evangelical Christianity has been plagued by the fruits of something we call revivalism. And that mainly arose in the late 19th century. It's different than a real authentic revival where God does an amazing work through His Spirit that is spontaneous and of His sovereign will. Something that we cannot manufacture. But revivalism pushed a faith, a faith, that was built on an extraordinary experience where suddenly someone awakens and has a conversion moment and it was often very emotional. And what you would find happening during these so-called revivals is that people would have this emotional experience. They claimed it to be faith. But if you went back into those same parts of the country, even a decade later, what you found is that they were spiritual wastelands. People had abandoned Christ just as quickly as they professed to turn to Him. And that's because faith isn't just an experience but it is based on a growing knowledge of a person, a relationship with Jesus. You see, mere experiences, we all know, they fade with time. But relationships, they take work. They take time to build and to maintain and to grow. Faith that is composed of this knowledge of God is a faith that will nurture over time. It might start, though, with an extraordinary experience. We do not deny that God sometimes dramatically converts a person, but oftentimes, in fact, normally, it seems that is not the case. Instead, it grows with time. And as that knowledge grows, so does the grace of God in their lives. And we all need then this kind of knowledge. We all long for this growing peace, this growing grace. Because it's the kind of grace and peace that says, even though I know I have transgressed God's law and I have hurt people and I have committed grievous sins and have damaged my life and the lives of others, it can all be forgiven. 
It's a grace and peace that says, even though my sin is a, a great act of cosmic treason against God, the, the charge against me is struck down because Jesus suffered the punishment I deserve in my place so that I might have that right relationship with God. That's the kind of knowledge of God that will surely help us traverse through this life in this crazy, broken, sinful, messed up world. This is the knowledge that leads us into true peace. The knowledge of God. And so we must ask then, well then, as Christians, how do we grow in this knowledge of God so that we can have a growing peace and grace multiplied to us? Well, it starts, and Peter shows us, with the fact that it is God who grants this knowledge to, him, to us Himself. It is He who gives it. We cannot get it ourselves. He works it upon us through His grace alone. And so notice verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. To have knowledge of God is to understand the why and the for what reason we actually exist in this world. Many people spend their lives trying to understand what the purpose of their lives are, or how they're supposed to live, what is the meaning of life. And much energy and time is exhausted and effort put into making sense of life in this world and trying to figure out how can I make a difference? How can I mean something? But the problem is that too often we're looking for that meaning within ourselves when what we should be doing is looking without because it is God who grants this knowledge. It is He that gives us what we need for life. God, by His unequaled power and authority, grants or gives us everything, Peter says, for life and godliness. It all comes through our knowledge of Him. He is the very source of our existence. He is the one who sustains us and provides for us. Every breath that you take right now, every morsel of food that we would ingest or a sip of water that we drink, they come to us by His gracious hand, His divine power that provides for us. Our hearts beat in the rhythm He has designed them uh, to beat in. And our blood flows through our veins, sustaining our lives. Our, our minds think and learn and reason and understand and grow. All because He has given us these things. Everything that pertains to life. But not just life. Peter says everything that pertains to our godliness comes from Him as well. Godliness comes only through grace. Now, godliness speaks primarily of duty or purpose. It is literally the meaning, the thrust of our life, and it dictates how we then live our life. Often we think of it as piety or devotion. In Peter's world, the, the concept of piety was that of a demonstration of loyalty. It was tied to the social order of the day, the, the structure of the day. So one's duty was to show reverence uh, or piety towards those uh, 
that were over them. And it displayed then a sense of loyalty and trust. So children would do this with their parents, spouses, kings, emperors. All these people were shown loyalty and devotion. It was their piety. It was their sense of duty. And godliness then, in our understanding, as the gospel comes into play, is our ultimate duty. It is then reflecting the glory of our Lord, our King, our God in all things. And the glory of God then is our ultimate purpose in this life, in everything that we do in the friends that we have, the families that we might raise, the people that we interact with, the jobs that we have, the, the things that we do uh, to enjoy this life, all of it is to be done in such a way that it reflects the glory of the one who has called us to himself. That's godliness. It's the very reason we are called by God, Peter says. We have been chosen by Him for His glory and His excellence. It is our duty or our reason for life. And it all comes when we know Him, when we have that knowledge of Him. And it's a knowledge that He grants, as Peter says here, through His promises to us. You see, we know God better when we know His promises, when we hear His voice, when we listen to what He says to us, how He will be a God to us and we will be His people. And so Peter writes in verse 4, by which He has granted to us precious and very great promises so that through them you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. These are God's covenant promises to be a God to us and us, uh, he to be our God forever. And a covenant, as we know, is all about relationship. When God promised to redeem people for his name, it was a promise to know them and for them to know him. And the fulfillment of that promise is accomplished by God alone. Because as we look through the history of redemption, his people always fail to keep their end of the covenant. Always. But God never fails. In fact, He guarantees that it, these promises will be fulfilled and that guarantee is the name Jesus Christ. So in other words then, to know God really is to know His grace. To know God is to know His mercy. To know God is to know His His holiness, His justice, His righteousness, peace, joy, and power. It is to be, as Peter says here, a partaker of the divine nature. All that God is. Now, to be a partaker of the divine nature is not saying that when, uh, when we know God, we somehow become part of God, that we are melded into the Godhead. There are some that would actually advocate that idea that is particularly popular in, in Eastern Orthodox thought. But that's not what Peter is saying here. 
In fact, that eliminates the clear distinction that we see in the scriptures between God as our creator and us as his creation, uh, a distinction that is maintained through all eternity. He is above us. He is high and lifted up. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts, not our thoughts. God is uncreated and we are the created ones. He is absolutely holy and set apart. There is no one like him. But what Peter is getting at here is that when we know God, when we have this relationship, when we understand him through his promises, we then know and experience his grace to the point that he removes from us the corruption of this world. He gives us a new life in Christ and makes us part of his kingdom. And it is that relationship with God that is reflected in who we are. We are partakers of the divine er, nature. It is our identity in Christ. And so just as children of an earthly father will reflect the qualities of their parentage, so believers or the spiritual children of God will reflect their heavenly father. That reflection of who we are in Christ is very much this life and godliness that God grants us. It is the knowledge that we need for living. The knowledge that tells us who we are and who we were created to be and what our purpose in life truly is. And what we find then when we come into this knowledge by faith is that we can only have fruitful and fulfilling lives when we have this knowledge of God. It is the only way. What every person born into this world wants to have is a fruitful, fulfilling life to feel like they've done something, that it's meant something. That's why we pursue all the knowledge of the universe. But if you don't know the God who created the universe... We can never find the very thing that gives our lives that purpose. So we need God to grant to us the knowledge of Himself as He promises that He will do when we come to Him in faith and repentance. And when He has done that, we then grow in that knowledge. You see, faith is simply the door that opens this knowledge of God. That is only the starting place. And so Peter writes, beginning in verse 5, for this reason, that you have this knowledge of God granted to you by God for life and godliness, for this reason, make every effort to supplement to your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. This is simply a call to grow in our faith, to grow in our knowledge of God in Christ, to know Him better. And to know Him better and in such a way that as we know Him, He is reflected through us. And so the apostle urges us then to make every effort to strive to do the best you can to grow in what God has already given you. Our faith as believers is not to be static. 
because you begin, you've been given everything you need for life and godliness in Jesus, then live that life which reflects the glory and the excellencies of God who called you to himself, the God who has made himself known to you. And so Peter uses a common literary chain here to make this point. The, the order of these virtues or qualities that are listed is not important. They are actually not building on one another. Rather, they are simply all linked together by faith. Faith is the anchor that holds this all together. Faith, which is the knowledge of God. And so this is very simply wisdom. It is the knowledge of God applied to our lives. As you know Him through faith, you take the knowledge of who He is and you make every possible effort through His Spirit to live it out in your life. No, we do not do that perfectly, but the idea is we are growing in this understanding. We want to reflect His glory. We do it not to earn right standing with God because that's already been granted by Christ and His righteousness. But we do it to be built upon that standing that we already have. That's what we call sanctification. It's a grace-driven effort to make much of God that you do actually belong to Him. We do not believe in salvation by works, but the Bible does teach salvation with works, works of thankfulness and gratitude that reflect who you are in Jesus. First, he says here, add to virtue virtue to your faith. And virtue, of course, is just moral uprightness. It's a reflection of God's law. Second, he says, add knowledge. That is to say, more knowledge of who God is. Grow in here understanding of his word and what he requires of us and how we can glorify him. Third, it's self-control. That is similar to this idea of sober-mindedness that Peter was so fond of talking about in his first letter. It involves taking charge of the the desires of our hearts so as to not abuse God's good gifts of life, gifts like food and drink and relationships and sexuality and time and even the created world itself as we should be careful not to waste His good blessings and the resources He gives us. And next comes steadfastness or endurance or faithfulness, especially in difficulties and trials. That is that quiet confidence that rests upon God's promises during times of great trial or suffering and affliction. And then we have brotherly love, which of course is the love that God's covenant people show towards one another within his church. And finally, we see love, that being compassion directed towards all people as we seek to love our neighbors as ourselves, including those outside the kingdom of Christ, showing compassion not just in what we do, but in what we say as we seek to spread the truth of the gospel and desire that others would come into this kingdom and know God and have multiplied to them the grace and peace that is being multiplied to us. Now, it's interesting when you go through this list of all these qualities, what you see here is the very character of God shining through. All these qualities that he lists 
come from God and God manifests them in a way we could never do. I mean, He is perfect in virtue, being absolutely pure and free from sin and corruption. He has infinite knowledge of all things, a holy wisdom. And we see God the Son, Jesus, being the perfect example of self-control. When He was reviled, He did not revile in turn, but continued to trust the will of the Father even to the cross. And God manifests His affection towards us as a Father. And Christ calls us brothers. And we see the love of God demonstrated to the point that God was willing to send the Son as a sacrifice for sinners so that many could be brought back in to knowing Him. You see, that's why all of this that we are called to strive for must begin with faith. Because faith knows the One who has done this perfectly for you. It won't work any other way. You've got to know God first through Christ. And when you do, He begins to work within you the virtue and the knowledge and the steadfastness and the brotherly affection and the love. He will grow it within you. So you must know Him if you are going to reflect who He is. And when you do, Peter says, if these qualities are yours, if God is working them within you and you are pursuing after them by His grace, they keep you, get this, they keep you from being ineffective, this is verse 8, or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Fruitful and effective, that is what everyone wants their lives to be. It's the idea that my life actually has done something. It has meaning. I'm finding joy and happiness in who I am. And notice, it isn't the fruit of some extraordinary, flashy, or spectacular thing that I have done. It's all what God has done for me and is building in me. It's all about Him. Too often as Christians, we think we have to be an apostle, a Paul, or a Peter, and do these amazing things in order to reflect God's glory. But that's not what we're called to at all. It's actually rather simple. It's normal, ordinary things that we do in our lives that reflect the nature of God and show the world His grace and peace. I mean, after all, Peter said in the opening of his letter, We all have equal faith. We all have equal standing before God. And as we manifest that faith and grow in it, our lives will be effective for the glory of God. We will bear the fruit of God's excellencies in us. That's the knowledge that we need, and it's the knowledge this world needs. Because if you don't have this knowledge manifested through God's work, look what happens in verse 9. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. People today 
as we have observed, they have all kinds of knowledge because it's accessible as it has never been before in the history of the world. And yet for all of that knowledge, if we do not have the knowledge of God manifested in our lives, Peter says, we are blind. We really don't see this world as God wants us to see it. If we try to understand life, if we try to understand the deep mysteries of this universe without a knowledge of God, we will fail. We will stumble about in the darkness of our own blindness, our own conceited ignorance. And it doesn't just happen to those who are outside the church because Peter says here, there are those even who have been within the church who were once part of God's covenant people who have done this who have stumbled away. He says they've forgotten that they were cleansed by their former sins. He's talking about baptism there. There's several reasons for that. I'm not going to get into all of them because of time. But baptism is a sign of the covenant that points us to the cleansing from forgiveness of sins. It doesn't cleanse us itself, but it is the seal of what Christ does. And that is why baptism is only the beginning and initiation. Faith must be nurtured from that point. It is to grow so that the reality of Christ's pardoning work becomes more fully known to us. This is why our larger catechism uses the language that we as God's people should seek to improve upon our baptism. That is simply growing in our faith, growing in this knowledge of God, of what he has done through you, through Jesus, that he has cleansed you and pardoned you, that you are clean by the blood of Christ from all your unrighteous deeds and all your sins are forgiven. And as that knowledge, as it grows, it pours out from our lives through these things, these qualities that we see here in verse 5. But those that have stumbled away, those that don't seek to grow in their faith, those that turn from the gospel, that don't look to glorify God in their lives, to be like their father, Peter says they've forgotten. They've forgotten they were marked to be part of his covenant people. Just like those in the Old Testament forgot that God called them and delivered them from Egypt, they forgot But this is a call to remember, a call to remember what God has done for you in Christ so that you might reflect him and know this grace and peace. Peter says here then that as believers, we are in verse 10 to be more diligent to confirm our calling and election For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Notice he doesn't say here, earn your calling and election. That's not possible. He doesn't say earn it. He simply says confirm it. Confirm what God has already done in your life. The calling and election of a believer come purely from God's grace. They are not earned in any way. And if God has chosen you by His grace... You are called by Jesus, and then nothing can separate you from Him. You will not fall from grace. However, 
We long for certainty. We long to know, am I really one of God's people? Am I amongst the redeemed? Am I part of his kingdom? Am I a citizen of his kingdom? And so Peter says, well, you want to know that? Confirm it. Confirm it and prove what God has already done in you to be true in your life. By growing in the knowledge, by nurturing your faith that he has given you. And as you travel this road through the kingdom of God, you do so all the way till Christ returns. So as we read in verse 11, for in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord. God's election and calling provide that entrance into the kingdom of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so the call is confirm that. Confirm that the door has been opened to you through Jesus by knowing Him and growing in that knowledge of Him. A knowledge that is reflected as you glorify God in your life and seek to live for Him. For He has given us Himself. And so go on in that knowledge. That's Peter's call here. Go on in the knowledge that God has already granted you. We can learn and investigate and study and research so many things. But all of that knowledge matters very little without the knowledge of God. For that knowledge is our very salvation. That knowledge is what gives us sense and order and meaning in this world in this life, and for all eternity. So know Him. Know Him through His Word. Know Him through His sacraments. Know Him through worship. Know Him who has called you and made you His own. Pursue that knowledge of God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful for Your Word. And we're thankful for the truth, the reality that we have done nothing to earn a spot in your family, but you have chosen us and called us completely by your grace. And yet, Lord, often we feel doubts in our hearts and our minds. Father, I pray that you would remind us of these promises that you have made to us. And as we remember them and understand them better, that we would strive by your spirit to grow and to reflect your character to this world so that they might as well see this peace and grace that is being multiplied to us. We ask this in Jesus name. Amen.